Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 22nd, 2014. This is episode 1431 of the Survival Podcast, and today's an interesting day. We get to actually celebrate the changing of the seasons together today, because we didn't get to do it yesterday, which is the real day, because it was Sunday and everybody had their day of rest and what have you. So today we have to uh, we have to acknowledge that. September 21st every year, just like clockwork, because it indeed is clockwork, is the fall equinox. This is the official start of fall. If you were uh, around a few thousand years ago, this day would be marked with many festivals and many things, and things like this were very, very important to people that live close to the land, regardless of their religious affiliation, some more than others due to their religious affiliations. But again, fall has started, and what does that tell us? Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock marches on. You are on that sliding scale moving toward greater liberty and freedom or moving away from it. You have no way that you can stand still. Liberty is not a static state. You're either moving toward it or you're moving away from it because society will move for you if you don't move for yourself. On that note, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors so we can get into our Monday feedback show. This is where you send me emails to jack at the com. And uh, you put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, video for Jack, whatever for Jack in the subject line. Send it off to that email again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you have a question or are making a point or what have you, please try to do that in one or two sentences, then give me your details. If you're sending me a link, give me at least a sentence on it so I know what it is. Try not to give me a paragraph. I probably can't read it. Try to sum it up for me. It'll make it more likely that I put it on the air. This is just due to the time required for me to sort through all this stuff on a daily basis. Before uh, before I get into that feedback again, let's take care of those sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time, but I say it because it's true. There's a triangle of gun operator efficiency, weapon, operator, ammo. You have to have all three. Take any one of those three out and you are sunk. Ammo, though, you need in great quantity because you need to train with it. You don't need to just train with dry firing and all the other drills you can do. You do need to get out and you need to put rounds downrange to really become efficient at your craft. And if you've noticed, whenever there's talk of new gun legislation, not only does the price of uh, guns go up, but the price of ammo goes up astronomically, and many of it comes in short supply. It is available now. You'll find it in bulk at Bulk Ammo. Imagine that. With great pricing, when I want to stock up on ammo, especially all the common calibers, I go to Bulk Ammo. You should, too. Remember, they do a discount for members of the Support Brigade as well. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical, all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. I mean, imagine this. You've just stored, you just bulked up on the ammo. Hey, maybe you need some cool Magpul magazines to, uh, to put that ammo in so you can set it down range and know that it's going to happen every time the way it's supposed to. You'll get that at SawTac and everything else you can think of from the awesome manly titanium spork, SOE tactical gear, and everything in between. You'll find it at SawTac.com. And again, they also do a discount for members of our support brigade. On that, it is the first day of fall. Well, this is the second day of fall because The first day was Sunday. I'm doing a sale uh, for the fall until the end of September. So until, uh, actually I say October 1st is what I put on the expiration date just to make it simple. Uh, you can get your first year of MSB or if you are currently expired, uh, you can get uh, a year of MSB for 30 bucks right now. 20 bucks off. The discount code is FALL14, F-A-L-L-1-4, FALL14, all lowercase with the numbers 1 and the number 4, FALL14. 
Uh, that makes a great deal even better. Uh, if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders, EMTs, paramedics, etc., I would just use the sale price, cancel the auto renew after you sign up, get the military discount next year. This is even better than the discount I give to the military guys. This is a big discount, 20 bucks on a $50 product. It's almost half price, not quite, but almost half price, about 40% off. And uh, that comes out to 12.5 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth 12.5 cents, consider joining while we have this sale going on. Uh, those of you that know me know that I have uh, a lot of integrity with the things that I do. And that means that on October 2nd, if you email me and ask me for this price, I can't do it. Uh, I put sales in place. I do them frequently. Uh, when they're over, they're over. That's just the only way to have integrity with your customers is to be honest about what you're doing. Um, if I did that, that would mean that the sale price is always the sale price, and it's just not a way to run a business. So you have now till lock, till midnight, Central Standard Time, because that's where my server's based on, um, to get the first year, again, for 30 bucks. Discount code uh, FALL14. Uh, with that, I am ready to get into your, your feedback and questions. I do want to, I'm trying, I'm going to be over the next month kind of leaking some information about something I'm doing. This is not to do with preparedness and it's not to do with permaculture, though preparedness to a degree, yes, at the family level. Uh, I have a new project that I am about to, again, begin leaking little bits of information on over the next few weeks. Um, soon I will put up a form where people that want to know more about it. It's not like super secret squirrel stuff, but I don't want to really broadcast it in public until we, uh, until we really launch the initiative. But people that want to know about it as we lead up to it, uh, I will make available a way for you guys to know about that. Um, I'll just put it this way. It has to do with something I've been doing on Facebook lately, but you'd probably never guess it from what I'm doing. I've been putting cool stuff from days gone by on Facebook. And it's amazing how many people are interested in, in, in commenting on it and the memories it brings back. What I put up last week was the little yellow things that you pop inside a 45 record. And it was interesting how many people had no idea what it was. Um, and how many people went, oh, yeah, I remember that. I still have some laying around. I still have this old record. Uh, and the next one was a skate key. Yeah, skates used to have key. Remember that horrible song? I've got a brand new pair of roller skate. That song, yeah. Skate key. And I talked about how when I was a kid, once I, once I told people what it was, that we uh, we used to take that key, take that roller skate apart, pull it into two pieces, get a two-by-four, put one on each end of it, put another two-by-four on the end to make it like an L, put a set of handles on a couple of braces to brace the two, and you had a scooter. Long before the days of the Razor scooters in the 1990s, I remember my kid, every other friend of his had one of those damn things. We were building our own back then. And uh, there's a little bit of nostalgia built into this, but possibly other things. If you'd like to know about it, just sit tight. More information will be coming. Anyway, with that, let's get into uh, our history segment. The year is 1431. Joan of Arc is going on trial in 1431. There's also a segment on the Cambodian flag and the largest temple in the world and the second king of France in the Wikipedia uh, page, for the TSP Wikipedia page for 1431. That's at tspwiki.com. Since Joan of Arc is so well known to so many, at least in name, I don't think many know her story, though, so I'm going to read what happened to Joan of Arc, how she ended up, well, dead. After doing great things for France, by the way. Um, Joan of Arc has been the savior of France in its war against the English. Her visions have implied that God is on the side of France, or at least he doesn't like the English interference. The English cannot let the, that, that stand, so after she is captured, she is prosecuted for heresy. She is a simple woman, but not a stupid woman. Her clearly articulated statements of faith make it difficult to convict her, so they set out to trick her into heresy to force her into immoral acts. That means rape. 
One of the charges is that she wears men's clothing, a clear violation of biblical code. The code exists, but if it applied to her, one would think her visions would have mentioned it to her. They set out men's clothing for her, so she either wears them or goes naked. She is convicted of heresy and defying the court by wearing men's clothing. She is burned at the stake. While it is not obvious now, she has set fire to the souls of the French. Children say that people are hanged sometimes for speaking the truth. Quote from Joan of Arc at her trial. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us. At the trial, Joan signed a simple statement. She agreed not to wear men's clothing again. Yet the English set out men's clothing for her. They switched the short document she signed to a much larger, larger document that made it appear that she admitted to heresy and that she, they tried to rape her. Uh, oh, and they tried to rape her. It is difficult to sort out now, but she probably realized the English would eventually trip her up, so she decided to take fate into her own hands and put on the men's clothing. In a few more years, the church will reconsider and find her innocent in 1456. Boy, that did her a lot of good, huh? In 1920, she will be sainted. I'm sure she cares. All right, so I just want to make this clear. First of all, never trust government. That's that's the biggest message I get out of this. Number two, in the end, she was she was burned at the stake for wearing pants. That, that's what it really comes down to. And so don't trust government. Just saying. I'm going to leave it at that, and let's get into uh, your feedback. And the first one I have for you today is another example of, well, maybe not not trusting government, but just government being stupid. How do you like this one, guys? 13-year-old gets detention. For what? For sharing lunch. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Yeah, that's what happened. Um, it, it's unbelievable to me that this kind of thing goes on in spite of all the stupidity I've seen. So this happened in, uh, you know, one of my favorite places in the world, freaking California. Uh, an administrator at Weaver, Weaverville, it should be called Weaselville, by the way. Weaverville Elementary School in Weaverville, California reportedly gave 13-year-old Kyle Bradford Detention after the 8th grader shared his lunch with a friend. The Trinity Alps Unified School District, which included Weaverville Elementary, prohibits students from sharing food with each other due to allergy and hygiene concerns. Bradford maintains he gave his friend his chicken burrito because he wasn't hungry and was going to throw it away. Since the friend didn't like what he'd been given for lunch and didn't have the means to get his own food, Kyle felt it made more sense to share his lunch. Because Kyle's not stupid, by the way. Despite his punishment, Bradford maintains he'd share his lunch again if it meant helping someone out. His mom, Sandy, supports her son's act of kindness regardless of the school's policies. And there's a little handwritten suspension detention slip here for Kyle, uh, grade 8, issued by Jay Kelly, who's a moron. And this is what it says. Kyle came through the line and got lunch and then while at the table gave it to another student. Policy is no sharing of food, which he's fully aware of. Folks, this is where we've gone to a point where public school is worse than, than prison. Remember I've talked about how prison systems are a lot like school systems anymore? Inmates in prison and jail can, can exchange and share food. Our children now have a restriction that doesn't apply to people in prison. Over something is, is there anybody in my audience that's not like 14 or 15 years old that doesn't remember going to school and exchanging lunch items with each other? This is where, this is where we've gotten stupid. This is again where I'm talking about this. This is, this is, expecting the state to provide safety rather than teaching people to see to their own safety. I mean, there's allergy concerns. I mean, we don't know. Maybe the kid has an allergy. You think the kid knows he has an allergy in eighth grade? 
You think a kid in eighth grade is old enough to know what to eat and what not to eat? How many eighth graders walk down to a convenience store, take a few bucks out of their pockets, and buy shit from the store? If that, that's safe, then me giving him a freaking burrito is. If he went and got his own burrito, would they have said you can't have it? No. This is dumb. This is stupid. This is moronic. But I'm not going to blow a jackass on this. Because I made a commitment to you guys that when school systems do this, to tell you what. One more reason to take your children out of public schools. Parents, the school systems no longer deserve the privilege of your child sitting in desks in their school so that they can make money off of your child, because that's how it works. It's a headcount thing. The more kids in your school, the more money you get, and the more profit you have, and the more money of the taxpayer you get to waste. Remove your children from public school at every level, if at all possible. And if you can do it partially, then do it partially. But take control back. Our children are going to have children that don't even know what liberty looks like. Don't even know what liberty looks like. And you know that little thing at the beginning I said that I'm working on that I'm going to release? Part of it is to preserve the, the memory of liberty so that one day liberty can be restored. And it's a way to get people doing it that don't even know that's what they're doing. But the reason that our children and their children are, are so willing to accept servitude and trampling upon their liberty is because they don't know any different. They don't even know what it was like 20 years ago, which isn't that long ago. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. And I, the, part of why I won't blow a gasket here is these people that live in Weaselville, California, All right. Apparently the kid has brains. The kid's like, I'll get the attention again. I don't care. I'm not letting somebody go hungry and while well, I throw food away. That's just not right. Okay. So ch cheers to this kid, right? And his, and his mom, same thing. But I mean, the people of Weaselville, you guys have to be stupid. You have to be beyond stupid. You deserve this school because you control this school. If, if six out of ten of you went, you know what? This is stupid. All of you assholes have to go. It would be changed next election. You won't do it. You won't do it. You won't do it. You're not going to do it. And, the, and it's not even Weaselville, California. It's not even California. This is going on everywhere, right here in my own backyard in Texas. People are accepting this now. But they have to be safe, Jack. What if there's a peanut in there? Is the kid allergic to peanuts? Do you put peanuts in a freaking chicken burrito? Could the kid buy the chicken burrito for himself? Well, what about sanitation? Their kids, they pick their nose. They walk around and touch each other all day long. They sneeze in their hands. They wipe it on walls. Anybody ever go into a boy's bathroom? I mean, please. This is dumb. This is stupid. Human beings have an immune system for a reason. People with allergies, look, I get this at like the kindergarten, first, second grade level. I get it. I get it. Kids at that age, they do things they're not supposed to. They, they eat food they're not. Kids with serious allergies, kids with serious allergies are aware of them by the time they're in junior high, high school level. They're not going to go out and eat it. And if, they, if, if they're going to go out and eat a peanut when they're not supposed to, they're going to get down to 7-Eleven and get a peanut M&M and eat it. I mean, again, but it all comes back to this. Number one, pull your kids out of public school if you can, and I understand if you can't. But number two, if you can't, be a pain in the ass of the school district when they do shit like this. Don't let it go. But number three, understand the bigger symptom. Expecting that safety be provided rather than safety being taught. That's where we're at today. We want safety and security provided rather than seeing to our own needs. It's disgusting. Get get the kids out, folks. Seriously, if you can. I know, again, I know. I, I, I just wish. 
I wish to just tomorrow morning, just 10% of this, the kids in this public school system just wouldn't show up. Just a note, my, my, my child will now be, have his study seen to at home. Uh, you no longer deserve the privilege of my child in your school. I mean, it would, it would spin the, it would snap the neck of the establishment so quickly. And it would be better for the, the 90% that would remain, it would get better for them because they'd know they had a problem. They're not aware they have the problem yet. I don't mean they're not aware of what they're doing. They're full well aware of what they're doing. They don't know how much backlash is building. They don't know that a revolution is coming. They, they don't. They think that you're, you're as stupid as most people are behaving. But most people aren't this stupid. What it is is they feel helpless. And a helpless person or a person that feels helpless or feels they can't make change uh, with the conventional means will, will sit there and accept abuse And they will let abuse go for a certain amount of time and to the point where their toes are stepped on too much. And then they will revolt by any means necessary. And I'm telling you, the people running these systems have no idea how close they are. How close they are to a backlash. And you know what? Tough shit. That's the way it works. You can only step on people's rights so long. Let's look at another one. So this comes from David. David, uh... David says, hey, Jack, I believe I heard you say in one podcast that you now prefer full-size tree, uh, keeping a full-size tree small with pruning as opposed to dwarf rootstock. I'm curious as to why. I'm planning on having my own small orchard-like area in the future and would like small trees where I can reach most of the fruits. Thanks in advance, David. Um, okay, so you're looking at 20 to 40 years in the difference of the average length of life of the tree. So a tree on a full-size rootstock, even when kept small, will often live 50, 150, 200 years. Uh, even some of your shorter-lived fruit trees, you're still looking at a 100-year tree. With dwarfing rootstocks, you're generally looking at more like a 25, 30-year tree, and that tree's going to die. It just is. Um, the tree's also less resilient. If you think about the full-size rootstock, it's a much larger rootstock. That's how a that's why a dwarfing rootstock dwarfs, dwarfs, dwarfs the tree. So it only grows to a certain size, so it only supports a certain size of tree. A full-size rootstock grows big enough to support a giant tree, but you can prune and train a tree to stay much smaller. And uh, so you get a more resilient root system and a stronger, longer-lived tree. I mean, that's, there, there's, you gain nothing from the dwarfing rootstock as far as I'm concerned anymore. I, I didn't always know this. And then when we started looking at the really intensive urban permaculture and there was a garden, I can't remember who, whose garden it is now, but Jeff Lawton is the one that brought out the video on it. And there's a gentleman in Australia that has this little tiny backyard garden and he has three apple trees that he prunes just overhead height in his backyard. They're, they're like three or four feet apart from each other. And they're all on full-size rootstock. And, and the fact that you can, that's it. You're done. I, I have, there's no, so once I know I can maintain the tree at a smaller size, then there's no advantage to the dwarfing rootstock anymore or semi-dwarf. It doesn't make any sense anymore. The only reason for, now, the rootstocks themselves have different diseases and stuff like we talked about last week. So if there's a highly resistant rootstock, And it's only available in a semi-dwarf. I might choose it, maybe. But generally speaking, you can find extremely hardy, disease-resistant rootstocks and full-size rootstocks. So then why, in God's name, would you want a dwarfing rootstock? Well, I want to be able to keep the tree small. Well, prune it and train it. See, here's the thing, too. They also say that on a full-size rootstock, 
trees fruit later in life. So a dwarfing tree fruits faster, and a full-size tree takes longer to start fruiting. And it depends. Let's see, that just comes back over and over, doesn't it? And as you learn about different methods of training trees, you learn why. Trees don't fruit until they canopy. So a tree on a full-size rootstock left to itself is going to grow very tall and straight before it canopies. It's designed to. And once it canopies and the, and, the, and the branches begin to go out laterally to the side and the weight begins to pull them down like an umbrella, that's like the signal to the tree, you've reached it, you're there. You can now begin to procreate. Because even though we put that tree out in a field maybe, which we really shouldn't, but we put it somewhere where it gets plenty of sun. Think about the way trees grow in nature. They're all racing to the roof, right? They're all very, tr trees grow very dense in a natural state. And, and the strongest and the toughest and the fastest growing make it up to the top. And they all start canopying out and claiming their space. And then you end up with all this underbrush and all these really thin trees. If you've ever walked through a forest, you see great big trees, big canopies, and little skinny trees all up in between them. Those are the ones that didn't make it. So if a tree starts canopying, okay, in nature, Before the, before the trees around it, what happens is those trees grow up through its canopy and canopy over top of it, and they take all the light and all the energy, and it's screwed. And the intrinsic intelligence in living beings knows this. So the tree is in this, this, this state based on its size, based on the genetics that tell it, you must go do this, and then you do this, and then you make more trees. So it wants to get way up there. If we prune it and train it to canopy, at six feet tall, once, once it starts to canopy out, the tree goes, oh, okay, I'll start putting on blossoms and fruit. Because the grafted part of the tree, in a grafted tree anyway, is the same graft that goes on the dwarf rootstock. It, it's only the shape and form of the tree that really dictates when it's going to start fruiting for you. So if we prune that tree and then we train it over a little bit French-style, orchard-style, and get that canopy... It'll flower and fruit just as fast as any dwarf. So I can get fruit just as fast. I get a tree that lives longer. I get a tree that's more drought resistant because it has a bigger root stock. Uh, it's, it's probably more disease resistant, by the way, as well, just because it's in a less stressed state. And the only thing I have to do is prune it, which I have to do anyway. So why would, see, at that point, I'm at a point now where I, I just would not. And we can train any tree and control its size. And all one has to do to see that is look at a tree like a sequoia, one of the largest, fastest-growing trees in the world. There are sequoias that are still standing that were here when Jesus Christ walked the planet. And they are so big you could cut a hole through them and drive a car through them. They're the, one of the most massive trees in the world. But what happens when somebody schooled in the art of bonsai, puts it in a little bitty pot, grows a seedling, and starts training it with wires and trimmings? You get a tree that's 100 years old, gnarled. It looks old, beautiful. You hold it in your hand. Think about that. If I can train a sequoia to have the right shape and form and beauty that it does when it's a 1,000 feet tall, damn near, with 300 feet tall, okay? 300-foot tree, I can train it to do it at 6, 8, 12 inches high. If I can do that, then I can damn sure take an apple tree that's supposed to grow 25 feet tall and maintain it at 6 to 8 feet tall. Of course I can. It won't just run away on me. All I have to do is start pulling those branches over and train the tree. And at that point, again, 
you know. And let's say I ever decide, you know what, I'd just like to let that tree go. I'd like to let it get really big. Yeah, I thought I was going to keep that one small, but it's toward the back. I can let it get big now. If I put in a tree with a dwarfing rootstock, can't do it. Anyway, let's take another one. Um, before I go on, though, I just want to say one thing so that people don't like freak out about my advice. I am planting and have planted trees that are on semi-dwarf rootstock. And I have a couple that are on true dwarfing. It was before I made this epiphany. But, I mean, I continue at some times to use stuff that's on a semi-dwarfing rootstock. And it's because I want a tree of a certain variety. And if what's available, that's what's available. There's some that are hard to find on a semi-dwarf or anything other than like a semi-dwarf uh, rootstock. Because that's what's so popular. So I, it's not that I won't use it. It's that if I have a choice... I can get it on full-size stock, semi-dwarf, or dwarf. I'm going to go with the full-size stock. All right. Next one comes in from Karim, and he, it, the uh, subject line he has on it is Rise of the Machines. And he says, so I was looking around in the solutions for my consulting business on the side when I ran into this. And he's got a link to an automated checkout system screen, and you'd have to just plug this thing in, and you'd have to have the right networking tools to go along with it and all. Um, but it comes with some of what you would need to set it up, and it's a touch screen that can be programmed so that customers can order anything they want from you. It's a thousand bucks at nine hundred fifty dollars. And what Karim says about it is no wonder why automated checkout systems are at restaurants are becoming more widespread. It costs less than a thousand dollars to replace an employee that would make twenty thousand four hundred forty dollars a year, eight hour shift, three hundred sixty five days at a minimum wage in Illinois. Karim. It's so much worse than even Karim put it. First of all, it doesn't replace an eight-hour shift working employee. If the restaurant's open for 12 hours or 16 hours a day, it replaces the man hours for that entire duration at that register. So it's not just an employee. It's one, two. And with the way they do part-time labor, it might be four employees. Now, it might be two full-time employees worth of labor. Let's say it's open for 16 hours or 16 man hours. But four... Part-time employees are a bigger pain in the ass for the employer than two full-time ones, other than the benefits and which make them take. But people are problems. They really are. I mean, if you ever start running a business, you'll find your biggest problem will always be people, and your biggest asset will always be people. And it's balancing that equation. So if I can eliminate the need for people, then I can I can be much more selective about the people I do take, and I don't have to settle. I can take the best. That's how I think as an employer. I'm sorry if anybody doesn't like that and thinks they're entitled to a job, but you go into business to make money, not to give people jobs. The, the, the jobs are a byproduct of the economic solution that is a business. Okay, So when I build a business to a point where to get any bigger, I can't do it alone anymore. If I want it bigger, for whatever reason, job creation is a byproduct. It's not why I go into business. It's, it's, I'm sorry, that's the way it is. So first of all, it, this one little tablet doesn't replace an employee. It replaces at least two with most restaurants based on the hours that are open. If you're talking fast food type stuff, which is where this is really making its headway right now. Though it is coming straight headlong into the middle class, uh, common everyday chain restaurant. Chili's, Applebee's, stuff like that. It's already there. They're playing with it now. Okay, but it's getting to a point where at least you can order another round of drinks without calling your uh, your server. Which, let's face it, that's the biggest pain in the ass when you're out eating. You have another round, yeah. Where's our server? Because they come in, they seat you, they take your drink order, they go get you your food. That, that all goes pretty well. But if you're sitting there having a, a nice long chat and you're going to be there a while and you think, yeah, we'll have one more round, you can't find them, right? 
They're over talking. They just got they got screwed over by the host that just sat them uh, a table with you know like 18 people that they're dealing with now. And you're like, oh, come on. But you can just go drinks, right? You can add it to your check. So they're, at least they're there. So this is happening there. But the fast food place, it's usually a 16-hour or longer open. This is two, three, four employees being replaced for a thousand bucks versus let's call it 40 grand in cost. And it's really not 40 grand in cost because even with part-time, by the time I pay, matching Social Security, etc., 16 man hours is going to cost me about 50 to $60,000 at minimum wage. That's what it's going to cost me. Thousand bucks, 60,000 bucks. Easy. But it's even bigger. See, I thought to myself, what does a cash register like that employee use cost? Do they cost the same or more? They cost more. Average $3,000. So if I'm already upgrading my equipment or I'm putting in a new restaurant, I can put in a $3,000 cash register that requires $60,000 of labor a year to run it. Okay? Or I can put a $1,000 cash register in where the customer provides their labor for themselves. This is why I'm saying... All this crap about fast food workers striking and all these stupid memes going around basically saying these people are getting what they deserve, right? And the other side going, we deserve more. It's just stupid. It's all a fake fight that they put in place because they already knew the solution was coming. There's, I don't care if this is what you got to get, okay? And if you don't get this, it's going to be very hard to understand the future that's about to unravel in the next five years in front of you with automation. If the fast food workers today all of a sudden all went, oh, wow, they really are going to do this, and, and came to the American people and said, we, the fast food workers of America, have realized the lunacy of the minimum wage, and we are all willing to work for any wage that the employer wants to pay, and we choose to work, we would like the minimum wage to no longer apply to our business. And by some miracle, people did it. They're still going to go to automation. They're still going to go to automation because no one can afford to work for what the computer can afford to work for. So there's no business reason for a person running a McDonald's, who, by the way, goes about three-quarters of a million dollars in a debt, works himself to the bone, nearly kills himself, risks and gambles everything he has for about five years to come to par. And at that point, yes, an owner of a McDonald's can make a decent living. If they own two, they can actually do really, really well. And when they sell them, they can retire as multimillionaires, yes. But it's, it's five years of working for minimum wage or less yourself and risking everything you had and having everything tied up in that store if they say it's okay for you to try. And if you do good enough but not quite good enough, they may say you failed to meet the obligations of your contract, take your shit away from you and sell it to a successful franchisee. That's what the guy you're yelling at has to do to run a McDonald's. If that guy goes, so I can cut my personnel in half and I can do it for less money than I'm going to do to keep my personnel where it is and then I'm going to save the money long term, done. Done. There's no way I'm not going to do that. And there's no way countless industries across America are not going to do that. And you're going to see more and more box stores closing, big giant stores closed. What's going to be the safest are places where shipping the goods to the home is not really practical. So if I was going to have a future in retail right now, I'd be looking to work for somebody like Lowe's or Home Depot. It, it, it's just not, it's the kind of stuff that people go to fit a solution together for themselves in. So if you knew exactly what you needed, you could order it from Lowe's.com and have it delivered to your house. But most of the time when you go to stores like that, you're not sure what you need. 
And everything's like you're when you're building something, you're custom fitness. Unless you have a plan, a blueprint to work off of, there's a need to be able to go there and look stuff up and figure stuff out. So, so those stores will be okay, and there'll be stores because people like to shop. And even with more and more of this automation, people still like. So there'll be stores. But the modern retailer that's smart is going to turn to service at the retail location rather than product. Okay, and what that means is you go to a store and you might leave with something, but there's a good chance you won't. Because if you can get it delivered to your house in two days, well, that's good too. So in a lot of instances, it'll be things that are configurable. And you'll go, well, I want this, 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 and this. And I'll go, okay, that can be at your house in uh, 48 hours. Just scan your Bitcoin card here. Yeah, I don't think I'm kidding either. Uh, grocery stores. They're going to be more and more with people pre-ordering, but they're going to automate that. They're going to automate it to where you put the item in your cart and scanned. And every little every little knickknack will get scanned. And you'll hit a thing, and you'll swipe a card in your own cart, and you'll roll right out and never even go to a cash register. And don't think they can't do it because they're on their way there very, very, very quickly. And the reason that will at least have a physical location is how many of you, when you go to the grocery store, make a list and religiously stick to the list. You don't buy anything else. Or when you go to the, the store, you're thinking, I'm, I don't know what I want to cook tonight. And, and you kind of pick, you look at the meat and go, ah, that looks, and there's a certain, you know, when you, when it comes to meat and vegetables, you, you, you want to be able to pick your own. So there'll always be a little bit of that there. But a lot of this other stuff, I mean, Amazon.com has shown us the way forward. And the stores that want to compete with Amazon are going to have to be, if you come here, we have knowledgeable people, but they're not going to be able to afford the inventory and what have you. They're going to have to create the customer experience. I know no one believes me, but uh, if I had a dollar for everything nobody believed me about that already happened, I'd have a lot of dollars. Let's take another one. The next thing I want to talk about, why this automation isn't a good thing, in some ways anyway. In some ways it's a great thing. It's progress. In some ways, it's a bad thing. One way that it's a bad thing is it's taking away a lot of the jobs that it used to be that a young person could go get to establish themselves as being credible as an employee and learning how to be an employee. A lot of the jobs that are going away are the kind of jobs where, you, as an employer, you know you're going to have high turnover. You expect it. You're going to have high turnover both because some people suck and because some people are good. I mean, those are your two reasons for turnover. The good guy gets to a point where, hey, I'm ready to move on in my career, and he leaves. Very few will stick around and become managers in these lower-end positions that are really qualified. And then you've got turnover because you've got to get rid of people or because they quit or because they just don't show up on time or whatever. So they, you, you have this churn, and that's a good reason for you to want to move to as much automation and minimize the human quotient as possible. But yet that's always been there. Right. That's, I mean, if you go back a hundred years, there were jobs like this, whether it was, you know, back in the day serving sodas at the soda jerk or whatever. There were these low end entry level jobs that a 16 year old kid, if he really wanted a job and he really tried to find a job, he could get a job. Now we've gotten to a point where employment being so scarce that more and more people older in life are taking these jobs and competing. And frankly, if I'm an employer and I have a 30 year old or a 16 year old, that I can hire to, to run the fries, and both actually seem to want a job, and both seem reasonably able to do the job, I'm going to take the 30-year-old. 30-year-old that's coming to me and asking to, to run the fry rack needs a job, man. And, and it's just a certain level of even, you know, depending on what's what I'm looking at as far as a person's quality, a certain level of maturity a 30-year-old has that a 16-year-old doesn't. So I, 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 I took the 16-year-old in the past because it's what I had available. 
I'll take the 30-year-old today because he's available. So there's less and less jobs for these kids already. So they're going longer and later into life before they hold a job, even just a part-time simple job. And now more of those jobs are going to be taken away yet. So that's one reason it's bad. The other reason it's bad is what this automation leads to. It leads to a level of profiling that's very eerie and very 1984 very fast. It's not just uh, the government you need to fear with data collection long term. It's what government and corporations do combining data collection techniques. You know, neo-fascism, as we've talked about before. So how about this one? This comes from Brett, and it says, this is an example of why data collection is so bad and why we need to encrypt everything that we can, except encryption here really wouldn't help. Paying cash would. It's an article in Forbes, and it says, how Target figured out a teen girl was pregnant before her father did. Here you go. Every time you go shopping, you share intimate details about your consumption patterns with retailers. And many of those retailers are studying those details to figure out what you like, what you need, and which coupons are the most likely to make you happy. Target, for example, has figured out how to data mine its way into your womb to figure out whether you have a baby on the way long before you need to start buying diapers. Charles Duhigg outlines in the New York Times how Target tries to hook parents Uh, hook parents to be at that crucial moment before they turn into rampant and loyal buyers of all things pastel, plastic, and miniature. He talked to a Target statistician, Andrew Pohl, before Target freaked out and cut off all communications. Do you think? <laughs> About the clues uh, to a customer's impending bundle of joy. Target assigns every customer a guest ID number tied to their credit card. You want to bet this dude got fired by Target? For, for, for leaking this information. He didn't know he was leaking it, right? He, he's like, oh, it's just what we do. Yeah, okay. Good job, buddy. Uh, I bet you, I bet you memos about TPS reports went rampant the next week. Do you think? Anyway, back to it. Um, every customer, a guest ID number tied to their credit card name or email address that becomes a bucket that stores the history of everything they've bought and any demographic information Target has collected from them or bought from, from other sources. Using that, Poll looked at historical buying data for all the ladies who had signed up for Target baby registries in the past from the New York Times. Uh, this is a quote from the New York Times now. Poll ran test after test analyzing the data, and before long, some useful patterns emerged. Lotions, for example. Lots of people buy lotion, but one of Poll's colleagues noticed that a woman on the baby registries were buying larger quantities of unscented lotion around the beginning of their second trimester. Another analyst noted that sometime in the first 20 weeks, pregnant women loaded up on supplements like calcium, magnesium, and zinc. Many shoppers pur pur purchase soap and cotton balls, but when somebody suddenly starts buying lots of scent-free soap and extra big bags of cotton balls in addition to hand sanitizers and washcloths, it signals that they could be getting close to their delivery date or have a rather nasty infection. Back to the New York Times, as Paul's computers crawled through the data, he was able to identify 25 products that, when analyzed together, allowed him to assign each shopper a pregnancy prediction score. More importantly, he could also estimate a due date within a small window so Target could send coupons timed to very specific stages of her pregnancy. One Target employee I spoke to provided a hypothetical example. Take a fictional Target shopper named Jenny Ward, who is 23, lives in Atlanta, and in March bought cocoa butter lotion, a purse large enough to double as a diaper bag, zinc and magnesium supplements, and a bright blue rug. There's, say, an 87% chance she's pregnant that her delivery date is sometime in late August. Think about that. 
And perhaps it's a boy based on the color of that rug. So Target starts sending coupons for baby items to customers according to their pregnancy scores. Duhigg shares an antidote so good that it, may, it, it, it sounds made up that conveys how eerily accurate the targeting is. An angry man went into Target outside Minneapolis uh, demanding to talk to the manager. <laughs> My daughter got this in the mail, he said. She's still in high school and you're sending her coupons for baby clothes and cribs. Are you trying to encourage her to get pregnant? The manager, of course. The manager at Target didn't have a friggin' clue, all right? He, God. Ah, the manager didn't have any idea what the man was talking about. He looked at the mailer. Sure enough, it was addressed to the man's daughter and contained advertisements for maternity clothing, nursing furniture, and pictures of smiling infants. The manager apologized, then called a few slaves later to, part, uh, to apologize again. Uh, on the phone, though, the father was somewhat abashed. I had a talk with my daughter. He said, it turns out she's been... She's, she's out. It turns out there's been some activities in my house I haven't been completely aware of. She's due in August. I owe you an apology. <sighs> I would be like, how the hell did you know and I didn't? Right? What Target discovered fairly quickly is that it creeped people out that the company knew about their pregnancies in advance. This is a quote back to the New York Times article. If we send someone a catalog and say congratulations on your first child and they've never told us they're pregnant, that's going to make some people uncomfortable, Paul told me. We are very conservative about compliance with all privacy laws, but even if you're following the law, you can do things where people get queasy, you think. Bold is mine. That quote is, uh, that is a quote for our times. So Target got sneakier about sending the coupons. The company can create personalized booklets. Instead of sending people with a high pregnancy scores book zero, coupons solely for diapers, rattles, strollers, and, uh, go the F to sleep book, they are more abruptly spread out about them. So here's what the, back to the article in the New York Times that the other article's referencing, and this is the consultant. Here's what he said. Then we started mixing in all these ads for things we knew pregnant women would never buy. So the baby ads look random. We put an ad for a lawnmower next to diapers. We put a coupon for wine glasses next to infant clothes. That way it looked like all the products were chosen by chance. And we found out that as long as the pregnant woman thinks she hasn't been spied on, she'll use the coupon. She just assumes that everyone else on her block got the same mailer for diapers and cribs. As long as we don't spook her, it works. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Because some people are thinking, is this really a big deal that Target can figure out that somebody's pregnant based on what they buy? I mean, you could probably, if you see like a, a, a couple young guys in their 20s buying a bunch of beer and sausages, figure out they might be going tailgating. When it goes into a computer and it starts to get analyzed that way, and here's what you have to understand. Clearly, this discussion was about pregnancy because it was an obvious one. It's also one that even though this guy was risking his job when he did this without realizing he was risking his job because he's probably smart but not smart, if you know what I mean, he thought, well, I mean, yeah, you know, this doesn't give away that much because it's clear when you're pregnant, you got this big old belly and, you know, you look pregnant. If they can figure this out, what else can they figure out? So if your shopping patterns are being analyzed in conjunction with all the data that's being stored by your government, If these agencies start to do this inner working with each other, this neo-fascist collaboration, this unholy cabal of private industry and government, how much could be known about a person's life? And how much of that could be used against them if they ever became a problem? I'm not saying that's the intent. I'm saying that's a system that's being created. And let me tell you, this is not new. Some of you may remember this that are long-time listeners, but this is four or five years ago, somewhere in there, It was uh, a time when we had a pretty big ice storm in Arlington. I hadn't been out of the house in a couple days. Oh, I didn't do the prepper scenario. I just remembered from saying that. Anyway, we'll do the prepper scenario next. 
So it had been iced in for like a week. Not a week, a few days, you know. It was just like one of those things, like, I want to get out. It's not really about that we needed anything, but I wanted to get out. And so there was a Tom Thumb just a mile down the road. So even though the roads were still a little messed up, it wasn't that bad anymore. So I drove down there. The parking lot was like a skating rink. So I'm out there spinning my big truck in circles on the ice rink and all. And when I got done with that, I slid it up to the curb as close as I could get. And that way I didn't have to walk on the ice very far and went in the store that was almost empty. But yet it was open and there were people there. And uh, I go in, and I picked up, like, I think my wife wanted some ice cream or something like that. So I got whatever she wanted, whatever gave me the excuse to get into the house, a couple other items. And there wasn't really anything on TV or on that I wanted to watch this before I had Netflix and stuff like that. So I walk by, and I see all the DVDs. Boy, I haven't bought one of those in a long time either. Think about that. Anyway, so I'm looking through them, and there's an old 80s series called The Blue and the Gray about the Civil War that I watched as a kid. And I like nostalgic stuff, so I'm like, you know what, I'm going to buy that. So I go and I buy the blue and the gray. I think it was like $8.99 on the clearance rack or something. for the, It was like a mini-series. It was like, a, like six discs or something like that. So I get it, I go home, I come home, we're going to watch the blue and the gray. She goes, that sounds stupid. I'm like, damn it. So, you know, one way or another, I find time to watch the blue and the gray. And Monday morning, this was like Thursday, Monday morning, I get an email from Amazon.com. And it's all... Movies related to the Civil War. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. Clearly there's some sort of data-sharing alliance there. I even did a post about it. So, as companies begin to collect data and use data, it becomes obvious to them very, very quickly that as valuable as the data is to them, so that they can sell more to that customer, that there's other companies who are really not direct competitors that will pay for the data. And the data itself can be worth more as a commodity than the data is worth just as an actionable item, as an asset. So it will begin to market and sell that data. And how many places does that data go? And how many other data banks does it get combined with? And once you're known in the system, don't think I can't build an algorithm that says once we identify this person, we can identify them again anywhere they show up, even if they're using a different name or a pseudonym or something like that, that I can, I can match behaviors and go, oh, these two are the same. Guys, I was running web analytics software, just analyzing customers that came to my websites back in 2006, that once I knew who you were, I could name you, either your real name, if I really knew who you were, I could just name you as a specific user and every time you came back, I could see you come back. That's little old me. Little old me in 2006. By the way, it was free software at the time, too. Now, what happens is that gets leveraged in society. There's actually some good that can come from it. I mean, don't you ever wish that if Facebook was going to shove ads in your face, they only showed, shoved ads in your face that you really cared about? Have you ever tried the, the ad feedback at Facebook where you're like, I don't like this, I don't care, go away, don't show me this anymore, it bores me, and the same kind of ads still keep coming back, so apparently it doesn't work? So, I mean, it wouldn't be bad that a company you're doing business with actually advertise to you the, the items you're actually interested in hearing about. That, that in itself wouldn't be bad, but it, it's not the technology, it's what can be done with the technology. You know, we have all this mythology around the rise of the machines, like like Karim called his segment that he sent me about the little touch pads that you can replace an employee with. The rise of the machines, Terminator, the machines will take over. Is it really that the machines are dangerous, or is it the machines and humans working together are dangerous? Is that 
Is that the newer fat? Like the, we have neo-fascism now. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, classic fascism is not Adolf Hitler. That's just a classic fascist government. Not every fascist government killed a bunch of people. Okay, That's a mythology so that you won't notice fascism when it's in front of you. Fascism is simply an economic, a socio-economic system whereby government and companies work together and see the class structure as something to be leveraged and mediated for the benefit of both the corporation and the state. That's, that's classic fascism. And in classic fascism, the government's in control and the corporations partner with the government. How's that different today? Really today, it's neo-fascism in that the corporations are in control because they fund the government. And I don't mean through taxes, I mean through election contributions, which manipulate the actions of government. But you still get the same beast. Fascism. Right? So, we have neo-fascism, we have classic fascism. Are we headed toward new fascism? Man working with computer to control people. That actually scares me more than the computers going nuts. I think the computers going nuts and taking over and developing their own intelligence and you know making reconstructing robots and stuff like that is just just exactly what it looks like fantasy. But human beings working in conjunction with artificial intelligence could become the greatest force of good ever seen in history, but just as just as capable of becoming the greatest force of evil. And our history as beings is not one of gravitating toward the good. It just isn't. The history segment should be showing you that. So it's just another thing to keep an eye on and to think about. And another reason that, you know, I don't do loyalty cards and stuff like that. And if I do, I pay cash and I don't use my real name. John Smith, 123 Fake Street, Fake Alabama, whatever, you know. And you pay cash on it if there's any kind of rebate or any reason to use it. I just don't think that all of my data needs to be known by the stores. And the problem is that you're doing it whether you want to or not. You must, If you're going to pay with a credit card, which you know we often do use a debit card, you might as well because they've already they got your name, they got your card number. And usually that means that they can access something like your date of birth. It's not hard to do. And they can usually find your address. They have computer algorithms that do all this now. So the reality is it's not even worth worrying about anymore. Must well just use the loyalty cards. If Unless you're going to go and pay cash for everything. Every single transaction you make is being recorded. Why do you think there's stores where you go and they say, what's your zip code? Like, or what's your phone number? Like That was Academy started doing that years ago. What's your phone number? You know, and No matter how you pay, they always ask for your phone number. And they'd stick your phone number in. And I would just tell them, you don't need my phone number. And they look at me like I was retarded. And I'm like, you don't need my phone. And it isn't even that they can't still process you. And I think, I'm just like, you're not getting my phone number. And I'd make jokes with girls. I'd say, you're a strange woman. I'm not going to be my phone number. My wife will get upset. Whatever. Or I'd go, 8675309. <laughs> get a little blast of nostalgia there, right? Some of you, as soon as you heard that, you sang it, right? What's your phone number? 8675309. What's the, what's the, what's the area code? Whatever, wherever code we're in. Because at that point, you're like, yeah, you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 817-867-5309. Put that in there. My name is Tommy. Yeah, Tommy. <laughs> But you laugh about it because it's, it is kind of eerie. 
And I'm not saying that every place that it's happening is bad. I'm just saying the fact that it's happening everywhere could lead to bad things. It's, it's something to pay attention to. So anyway, something about the last segment made me realize I had not yet done the prepper scenario for Monday. So every Monday we do a prepper scenario that uh, puts you into a position of something that really could happen, something that's not highly unlikely. For a while we were, we were doing the stuff from conflicted to card game, which are all pretty much apocalyptic scenarios. So today, uh, we started a couple weeks ago, I started doing something a little bit more likely, the type of things we talk about preparing for all the time. And then each week I tell you the new scenario, but before I do that, I remind you of the old scenario, and I tell you what, what we would do in that case. Um, and the last week's scenario was this. There's a knock on your door. It's a sheriff's deputy or local police officer. He tells you there's a chemical spill just up the road, and mandatory evacuation has been ordered. It's about 8 p.m. Your spouse is in the shower. Your kids are in PJs in front of the TV. The threat is real. You understand it will comply with the order to evacuate. evacuate. Um, the officer doesn't know how long it will last. He says likely at least a week, and you need to get out now. Ten minutes to get out tops. What do you do? The evacuation area is relatively small and about a mile in diameter. A lot of great responses on this, including quite a few people that simply stated, if you're not prepared, you can't even think about it now. All you can do is grab the shit that you think you need and get out. To a degree, you're right. Um, this is what we would do. First of all, I get to cheat. I don't have kids, but I do have two dogs and two cats. Uh, we do have stuff to get them loaded up, and they would get loaded up, and they would go with us. Uh, we would immediately be trying to check into two different local hotels that we already have relationships with, that we've done group rates for people here at the uh, the thing with, and uh, one at least allows pets, and if I have to sneak them in, I have to sneak them in. It's just that simple. Um, so that's, you know, grab your go bags and go. I mean, it, it, it's we're prepared to leave, so that part's not complicated. I, I put this scenario up for two reasons, actually three, um, because of what I thought I could, I could kind of get you thinking about on this one. Number one, my big weakness is I have chickens, I have ducks, and I have geese. And I, the, the concept of taking 80 chickens, 24 ducks, and nine geese or eight geese with us is just ridiculous. It cannot happen. They have to be left on their own. But if I'm going to be gone a week, I'd like them not to die, please. So we keep large watering buckets out there for them. Uh, they've got stock tanks and things like that. They would be pretty skanky after a week, but they would they would work. And as long as whatever the chemical thing is didn't actually kill them, they'd probably be okay water-wise. If I had already put them to bed for the night, and at 8 o'clock sometimes of the year that would be the case, I would go out and I would open the coop, I would open the duck house and the duck gate, I would open the goose gate. And that would give the animals free range to the property. And the property's fenced in. I would also take all the sacks of feed that we have on hand, which is quite a bit, and I would just dump them on the ground. I, it's not the best way. It's wasteful, but, hey, it's there. And that way there would be food for quite a while, there would be water for quite a while, and they're on their own. That's a big thing for us. The other thing I would do, and this is something to think about, is having rolls. I would immediately tell my wife, get out of the shower, we've got to go now. And I would say, any calls that need to be made, you make them. And I'd throw my earpiece into my iPhone, turn on 5.0 Radio Pro, uh, 5.0 Radio Pro app, pull up Terry Kearney Sheriff's Department, because they would be the ones doing this, uh, in EMS, and I would be listening to basically a police scanner for those two channels on 5.0 Radio Pro, which is my favorite app for that, while I was doing everything else. You can have scanners and stuff, but that would be instantaneous. Everything else is pretty much ready. And we would try to stay as close Because remember I said the disaster radius was only about an, a one mile. They were evacuating people as close as possible 
and I would be monitoring the sheriffs. The other thing is, I would not argue with the deputy at all, and I would give them no reason to believe that their, their command of 10 minutes wasn't going to be listened to, because if I do that, they're probably going to go away. And the reality is, in the scenario I gave you, there's a chemical spill somewhere, they're evacuating a one-mile radius, um, unless they're, 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 they're like dragging you out the door, you're probably not going to be dead in 20, okay? So this isn't a fire, this is a chemical spill, they're relatively slow moving, if it takes us 30 minutes to get out the door, fine. He's got to go deal with everybody else. The only way he's going to make a big deal out of this is going to be if I give him any reason to believe we're not complying. I'm going to be like, holy crap, yes sir, we're, get, we're ready to leave, we're going to get our stuff and we'll be out of here in 15, no problem. Because he's going to go, okay, and he's going to leave. He's going to go bother somebody else. So by monitoring EMS and the sheriff's department on the scanner, I'm going to know how serious this thing really is. I'm going to be able to tell by the chatter, hey, you know what, we got to leave a few holes unplugged, and we got to be out of here in 15. This is really, really dangerous. Or they're being precautionary. If it takes us 30 minutes, it takes us 30 minutes. 30 minutes is a lot different than 15. So having that scanner, whether it's handheld, whether it's a cell phone, whatever, and being able to monitor EMS on an evacuation to know exactly how critical it is that you comply with a timeline is key, and it allows you to feign compliance and buy yourself that extra 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour that normally you wouldn't have. So with that, let's, uh, let's go to uh, this week's prepper scenario, um, and what would you do? And here it is. A ser serious illness of some form has gone into a true epidemic mode. Not the fake epidemics that you hear about all the time that you need to be afraid of and lock yourself into a closet. A real epidemic has occurred. Uh, and the government and the CDC have imposed a quarantine. There is to be no travel or movement in your area for 30 days. If you are away from home, you are permitted to travel home. But once there, you must stay put. If you are home now, you must stay. No last-minute trips to the store which is likely a shambles anyway. You can't go to work. You and your family just have to stick it out for 30 days, maybe more. What would you do, including how to keep sanitation in check and how to keep morale up? So there's your scenario. Again, a serious illness of some form has gone in a true epidemic mode. The government and the CDC have imposed a quarantine. There is to be no travel or movement in your area for 30 days. If you are away from home, you are permitted to travel home, but once you are there, you must stay put. If you are home now, you must stay. No last-minute trips to the store, which is likely a shambles anyway. You can't go to work. You and your family just have to stick it out for 30 days, maybe more. What would you do, including how to keep sanitation in check and how to keep morale up? So let's hear your feedback. Today's episode, again, 1431. Go to the comments section and tell me how would you handle that scenario. So with that, let's go to another bit of your feedback. Next, I want to talk a bit about the uh, GMO debate and lies, blatant lies. And this time by someone I really don't expect to lie this way, this blatantly. Um, and I don't just mean about the opinion that GMO is safe. I mean just a flat-out lie. You'll understand in a second. Uh, this, this came uh, from Ben, and it says, It seems like there's a concerted effort by the establishment to equate GMO with hybrid to dispel anti-GMO sentiment. Here's another article from Smithsonian. And again, I... You know, I, I expect a publication like Smithsonian, let's say on, um, on, on GMOs to maybe come down on the supposed side of science or on global warming to say we 90% of the scientists agree, which they don't, by the way. Uh, but 
in something like this, when you're factually inaccurate by every meaning of the words you could possibly define, I, I am shocked this Smithsonian is this false. I mean, this is... Here's the title of the article. Sorry, hipsters, that organic kale is a genetically modified food. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Food has become a battleground, and one of the fiercest fights involved genetically modified organisms or GMOs. With the aid of genetic engineering, we have created corn, soybeans, cotton, and other crops with specific genes to help them resist pests, disease, and herbicides. Supporters trumpet the reduced costs and increased yields, especially in the developing world. They also point to the availability of GMOs to prevent diseases from running the entire industry, such as Hawaiian papayas and Florida oranges. When we put a gene into a plant, we know exactly where it goes. We know what it does, and we can actually measure the whole genome uh, basis basis of, uh, basis if it affects other genes. No, you can't. You can't chain one line to, one line to code in the genetic structure of an organism and know what it does to all the other lines of code. You cannot. It's a lie. But that's not the lie I'm talking about, argues Robert Goldberg, a plant molecular biologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. See, right now I'm not upset because they're just towing the party line. I understand that. Detractors argue that GMOs raise a number of thorny issues, from medical safety to environmental protection to lax regulations and corporate control of the food supply. As the debate rages on, it's estimated 70% of processed foods already contain some modified products. Syrup from GM corn and sugar and from GM sugar beets are used as sweeteners, while GM canola and cottonseed provide cooking oil. Now about 25 states across the U.S. are considering laws that would require labeling for all GM foods so the consumers can decide for themselves. For the health conscious, the prevailing wisdom is that natural food is the best food. But no matter where GMOs, no matter what GMO studies say, one scientific fact is inescapable. This is about to be the biggest lie you've heard this week so far. Basically, none of our dietary staples are natural. Some 10,000 years ago, our ancestors picked tiny berries, collected bitter plants, and hunted sinewy game. Because the, these are foods that occurred naturally in the wild, then came agriculture, and with it, the eventual realization that farmers could selectively breed animals and plants to be bigger, hardier, and easier to manage. Here are just a few of the modern supermarket offerings that are gen that have been genetically modified for centuries. And it's cows and chickens, kales, almonds, grapefruit, corn, tomatoes. Okay. Bullshit! I mean, I just feel like Louis Black right now. This is bullshit! It's not genetic modification. Selective breeding is not genetic modification. The Smithsonian should be shamed for this. This is, this is disgusting! To me, anyway, because I have some reasonable expectation of factual delivery and not just outright open slander by an institution like Smithsonian.com. Genetic modification occurs to an organism when the genes are altered by a human being. That's genetic modification. Taking two animals or two plants and breeding them together and selecting offspring. It's genetic manipulation, not modification. It's all reproduction that could happen in nature. Taking a gene from a fish and shooting it with a gene gun or using a transmugenic virus to infect the DNA of a cotton seed, okay, and then taking the oil from that cotton seed and putting it in your food, that is not selective breeding. That is not genetic manipulation. 
That is genetic modification. That is unnatural. So breeding selective wild ox and selecting their offspring until you end up with something like a modern cow, okay? That is not genetic modification. That is a natural reproductive thing that can happen without man manipulating or intervening in it. We just happen to speed the process up by selecting for what we want. In actuality, it is a natural thing. Okay, Lions feeding on wildebeests over time alter the wildebeests that survive. Human beings choosing which animals to reproduce for the purpose of consumption alters them. We're just doing it at a higher level than a lion is. Okay? Changing the genetic code manually is a different thing. It's bullshit. Um, I mean, I'm kind of, if this came from someone else, I, I would, I, I, I would understand. When you get stuff like this, you understand that your government, because the Smithsonian is a public institution, the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., which is a beautiful place to go, by the way, you can see that your government has been completely bought and paid for now. No, sorry, hipsters, that, that, that organic kale is a genetically modified food. If the, the Organic Kale Growers Association, and I'm sure there is such a thing, should take this article and use it in a lawsuit and sue Smithsonian for this. And every producer of food here, that every almond grower that's growing almonds that are non-GMO, which would be all almonds right now, by the way, should sue, get together in a class action, sue the Smithsonian. So should everybody growing grapefruit, every growing, everybody growing non-GMO corn. Because what Smithsonian's just said in this article is, well, all the corn's GMO. Bullshit. Again, I want to go Lewis Black on this, right? Tomatoes. Anybody growing this stuff that's in some kind of association that's in any way possibly harmed, especially those growing things and saying, ours is not GMO, you've just had one of the most respected scientific organizations in the nation, in the world, come out and say, you're lying. And in doing so, they're lying. They should be held accountable for this. I'm not going to mount millions against the Smithsonian.com or something like that. I, I mean, in the end, I figure it's up to people to educate themselves and know this stuff. But this is disgraceful. And again, if it was, if it was Fox News, F-A-U-X, right, right, or CNN or somebody saying this, it would piss me off. But this really is just disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting because the average person is going to read that and go, oh, oh, okay, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Almonds used to be these, these wild little bitter things that were horrible and they had cyanide and, and a couple handfuls of them would kill a human. That's in the article. And, and humans developed this thing into the modern almond and grapefruits and corn. And the wild ancestors of corn were like this stuff called saoente. And you wouldn't really want to eat that. But now, no, bullshit. God, bullshit. And, and this is why I tell you, don't trust the media at any level on anything. It's not that they're always lying. It's you should always assume that they might be lying. And you should verify what is the truth and what is a lie for yourself. Now, someone would say, but Jack, this is subject to interpretation. No, it's not. 
It is not. It is not. It is not. The, the, the person that wrote this article, who is the jackass that wrote this article? David Newland is a freelance writer based in Los Angeles. What a jackass. Um, David Newland. What a, I wonder who this guy is. He's probably on Monsanto's payroll or something like that. I mean, I don't know who this jerk is. I, uh, I tried to find more information on him, and I, he only has one article on Smithsonian. Hopefully it was his first and it'll be his last. I found a few other hits for his name that could be him, but I really can't find him. I'd like to track this down. I, this, this guy's on somebody's payroll. You, you don't write an article like this unless you have an agenda, a, a very clear agenda, anybody with a brain looking at it, and that is the misinformation, the spread of misinformation to equate something that is not equatable with something else as, as being equal, and, and, to in, and to insinuate that... Selective breeding and genetic modification are the same thing. It's just a bald-faced, outright lie. I'll explain it to you this way. If I take a shepherd and a collie dog, and I breed them, and I get a shepherd-collie mix, I can then start working with that, and long-term I might develop a breed like the Sheltie. And if I work with it long enough, I'll get it to breed true. But in the end... Two dogs, re, you know, procreated through a natural process, all right, and they made puppies. In genetic modification, I would actually go into the embryo of the developing dog and change the genetic code with a gene that could never get there ever with natural reproduction because it doesn't come from a dog. It comes from a cat. So we really could create a puppy kitten, like I joke about sometimes in the apocalypse with dogs and cats are, 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 are friends and having puppy kittens, right? So we could really create a puppy kitten. That's GMO. And to say that creating a Sheltie is the same as creating a puppy kitten is, is, is such a blatant lie. You can't be an apologist for this asshole that wrote this thing. And you might wonder why it matters. Well, it matters because... You're trying to have a legitimate debate and acknowledge in some ways the, the things that aren't necessarily harmful about GMO. How bad is the modification itself? The answer is we don't really know. Of course, there's another article out that says the debate is over. Where have we heard that bullshit before, right? Two sides. Say, he got, <laughs> never mind. I'm not even going to go there. You, you make that link for yourself. So you've got this. Attempt to, to like actually let's discuss the issue and look at things like part of the problem isn't just that we've modified the soybean in and of itself, but we've modified it so that we can spray an herbicide, glyphosate, onto it. And so that we this gets multiple times it's sprayed per growing season so that I'm actually consuming Roundup in the soy meal. Okay? That's the bigger problem. We've actually made it acceptable to put a chemical on the plant that the chemical normally couldn't have, and you can't get it off. You can't wash it off. It's now it's been absorbed into the plant, and now that that chemical, which is basically a growth agent, a, a, a wacky hormonal growth agent, is now in my body or my child's body. So I'm, I'm actually more concerned about that than the modification itself. And, and then this disinformation comes in that just makes you like, oh, they're all crazy. All those guys eating that organic kale, they're all eating GMOs. That's why it's so maddening. Anyway, hopefully you guys understand the difference. And when you hear this, try not to go all Lewis Black on it like, like I want to go. And, and just tell the truth. Just tell people how it works. And that's how it works. 
taking two things that naturally breed and selecting the offspring is not the same as taking a gene from something that doesn't naturally breed and inserting it with a transmugenic virus, which is the number one way this is done is they, they actually manipulate a virus to be a carrier of the gene and they use it to infect the other gene. And that's, that's a little bit scary as shit by itself. Let's take another one. And now time for more stupidity in public education. Yep, more stupidity in public education. Round two today. Student has now had to petition to allow chapstick in school. This is in USA Today. Um, student petitions to lift school's chapstick ban. Yes, chapstick, it's dangerous. We've got to get rid of it. Stuart Draft, uh, Virginia, an elementary school student who was denied chapstick when her chap lips started bleeding and has decided to fight a countywide uh, school ban on lip balm. The skin on Grace Carroll's lips doesn't handle the elements very well. In fact, they chap until they bleed. For years, when it's happened during school, she asked teachers for relief with the lip balm, only to be denied repeatedly per countrywide school policy instituted for sanitation reasons. While in fourth grade, his his past winter, uh, this past winter, the bleeding started, and Grace was told she couldn't use chapstick. Later that day, they started to bleed again, and my teacher said it was against school policy to have chapstick during school, so I had to go to the bathroom, she said. The first day of the school year, the Stewart's Draft Elementary School fifth grader decided she'd take action and seek relief from Augusta County Public Schools chapstick man and said her father, David, uh, said her father, David Carafa. She came home and said, Dad, I want to change the chapstick rules, said Carafa. Um, Grace gathered hundreds of signatures from students in support of ending the lip balm prohibition. She wrote a letter to the school board members last week, uh, presented her petition binder to them and at their regular meeting. The board and the central office have taken the request and petition under advisement, an official said. Grace Eleven began complaining about the lip balm ban in second grade and, and, uh, and had her fill of it by the start of the current school year when she complained again, her father said. Quote, I said, well, go talk to the principal, said Karoff. Car- Uh, a member of the Augusta County Board of Supervisors, talked to the teacher, talked to everybody. Grace followed up and started a petition drive on notebook paper. She was invited to speak in front of some classrooms, uh, and other teachers offered to pass it around. The notebook pages filled with names began stacking up. Her father thought she needed more formal petition papers uh, with the issue spelled out at the head of the lines for the signatures, he said. Quote, I made up a sheet for her, and she started carrying those around and started filling Uh, filling those things like crazy. I was impressed. And he won, and he was won over to the cause of overturning chapstick ban. I, I, I just can't read anymore. I, I, I have, I'm having, if you can't tell, I'm reading this like I'm not a good reader or something because I, I, I can't process all the bullshit over this. You got a kid with bleeding lips that wants lip balm for the purpose of their bleeding lips. I'm sorry, we can't do that. And you have teachers offering to help with a petition, and you got a school board taking it under advisement. And they're worried about sanitation from lip balm? Okay, who didn't use chapstick in school or something like that? I never was a chapstick person. You look like a girl as a boy, you know, with chap, but, you know, what do they call it? Carmex? And there's times now where my lips get chapped and I use Carmex on my lips. You can't have it. No, your lips are bleeding. I don't give it. Go to the bathroom. What are you doing in the bathroom without lip balm, you idiots? Again, back to the bigger issue. We expect now our government and our public institutions to provide safety and security versus encouraging 
the seeing of safety and security by seeing to of safety and security by individuals. But I'm just going to say it one more time. How much do you need to hear parents before you say, you know what, no more, no more, just not. We're either get them out or or start showing up at the school board meetings and saying, no, we're not going to be doing this anymore. No, we're not. You guys are going to you're going to all be fired. Either get active because I'll tell you what, voting for your president is a waste of time. Bought and paid for. These people can be removed. If you want to do it politically, fine. Do it politically. Get rid of whoever, Stuart's draft Virginia. Why are these people still in office? Why are they making decisions for your kids? Who really thinks this is a good idea? I mean, this is just getting stupid. What are these kids, what are these kids permitted to do? They can't share a burrito, okay? Can't share food. Isn't it great that we're teaching children not to share food? Isn't that wonderful? We have a, a, a whole world full of people that are starving. Uh, people that are in need. People that want help. And we can't have people sharing. Do you know why they can't have people sharing? Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because if people actually see that when I see a person in need, I can directly help them, why do I need government to do it for me? Huh? And then you just got stupid. This is just stupid. Well, you know, they, they could share that. Well, how do you police that when they're not at school? How do you police that when they're in the bathroom? How do you police that before school? How do you police that at the bus stop? I mean, honestly, this is what this little girl should do for her. Fight the battle, little girl, definitely. This little girl should get herself a little thing of Carmex, and if she needs her lips protected, she should just go in the bathroom and put it on there. Works better than chapstick anyway, by the way. That's all your med kits. Your little med kits to your big med kits should have at least one or two things of Carmex, guys. I'm going to let this go. Just parents, one more reason to get your, your, your students out of public school. But I, I'm going to take this into a prepper thing. Carmex is one of the greatest little assets there are. And I know some of you are going to say, I make my own and all. That's fine. Go ahead and do that. Then you know what to do. But for people that just need to buy something, it is so much more than just for lips. If you have, like, chapped skin or rub skin that's raw and red and cracked, it's excellent. It's excellent for that. And you might think, well, you know, I'm worried about surviving the end of the world. Do I only need to worry about chapped lips? Man, um, you get into a situation where your lips are chapped, what starts happening? You know what happens. Against everything you know not to do, what do you do? You, you, lick, you lick and moisten your lips. Why? Because temporarily feels better. And then what does that do? It makes them worse. They get chapped and bloody. You know, on the chapstick thing, it doesn't seem like a big prepper thing, but you, you, you start thinking a little bit differently when you start examining actual scenarios. So one of the most important things, and one of the things in the scenario this week, was sanitation, right? So you're going to be stuck in your house for 30 days. If there's a quarantine, garbage man's not coming. Now, listen, in that scenario, the toilets still work and all, but there's a lot of disasters you get into. Sanitation becomes critical. And sanitation becomes critical in conjunction with not having exposed wounds. If you're in a, a situation where disease or illness or bacteria is spreading, and you have open wounds, especially on your face, it's a greater risk. So one of the ways to not get things infected is to not have them open to infection in the first place. The other thing is you've never had really badly chapped lips, if you feel that way. Um, 
you know, if you spend any time skiing or doing activities like that, you learn real quick that you protect your lips because it sucks. I mean, it, it, it really, really sucks. And, you know, just being uncomfortable is not good, but being uncomfortable in a bad situation is not good. So I would say add that to your kit. Another thing you should add to your kit, and this is something that only mothers will think of, but everybody else should have it too, is diaper ointment. Diaper ointment is not really diaper ointment in of itself. It's zinc oxide. And rashes and rubbing of skin anywhere that occur It is very good at, at, at alleviating that problem. It can also be combined with herbs to make salves and have so both a, an effect on reducing swelling and inflammation and itching where it's because of a rubbing contact, but then it can actually be a catalyst for the herb. So uh, I'll turn that little aside there on this stupidity of the public school system and say, you know, those are two things that should be in your emergency kit. And again, if my child was dealing with this, the first thing I would do is I would go down to the school and I would say, you know what, until we figure out how to keep you from being stupid, we're going to make a way for this to happen. I don't care if it's kept at the principal's office and she has to come to you when she needs it. I don't care. But you're not going to put my child into this situation, period. And you're not going to get me to go away. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be – what's with this kid's dad? I guess he's letting her – Learn to fight her own battles and stuff like that. But I also think that when you have someone who's in a position of weakness and you're in a position of strength, that you're kind of incumbent to, to do something to help. And printing out papers, I, I feel like this guy should be doing more. But yet, man, I really don't want to say that. I really don't want to say that. In a, in a day and age where kids have everything done for them, he's making her work for this. And I, I guess that's good, in a way. But... What are the odds of this kid winning this fight? I don't know. I mean, is there any brains in the school district at all? I'm telling you right now as a parent, I'd be like, hell no. Hell no. You, I mean, you're not doing this. Now, I might say, you fight the battle to get the rules changed, and let's see if you, you know, that I think would be the balance. Like, I'm going to make sure that your health and your, you know, a reasonable expectation of comfort are not in, in jeopardy. We're, I'm going to take care of that. Because it's not good to have, if you have your lips bleeding from being chapped, that's not good. And we shouldn't let our, we sh I will not let someone else make my child be in that state, period. But I'd say, now let's see if you still have it in you. Do you still think this needs to be changed? And see if that kid will still do what this girl's doing. Or is it only, so, so you understand it's about more than you. I think that would be a better lesson. So I'm not going to really put the guy down because I get it. But I'd be like, honey, here. Here's some Carmex, put it in your pocket. Go to the restroom, go into the into the stall, put it on. Don't have any color or fragrance or anything. So there. And if they ask why your lips like are like that, you tell them it's none of their damn business, because that's the way they look. But um, man, add those two things to your bed kits, guys: diaper cream and Carmex. This next one makes me sick as a Texan, and, and I don't think the guy that's sitting in prison right now is necessarily a great guy. But I don't think he belongs in prison for what happened. Texas wants to execute man who killed home intruder who turned out to be a SWAT member. Attempting to serve a search warrant by entering a house through a window got a clean Texas police detective Charles Dwindle shot in the face and killed last May. It was yet another SWAT raid organized for a purpose other than the reason they were invented. 
The police had a search warrant looking for narcotics at the home of Marvin Lewis Guy, 49. They decided to serve this warrant at 5.30 in the morning and without knocking on his door. He opened fire on them, killing Dwindle and injuring three others. Though they found a glass pipe, a grinder, and a pistol, they did not find any drugs. Former Reason editor Radley Balco took note of the deadly raid in May at the Washington Post. A police informant apparently told them there were bags of cocaine inside the house, which sounds a lot like another familiar drug raid in Virginia that got an officer killed. The Virginia case ended with Ryan Frederick in prison for 10 years despite his insistence that he thought he was defending himself against home intruders. He may end up lucky compared to Guy. Prosecutors in Texas are going to seek the death penalty against him. KWTX offers a dreadfully written summary that says next to nothing about the circumstances of the raid, but gives Dwindle's whole life story. Guy faces three additional charges of attempted capital murder for shooting other officers. The story mentions the no-knock raid, but fails to explain why it happened or the failure to find any drugs. A search for Guy in the jail inmate locator for Bell County, Texas, shows that he's being charged only for the shootings. There's no drug-related charges listed. He's being held on a bond totaling $4.5 million. You know what? If they find a pipe and a grinder in a guy's place, this guy's probably a dopehead. Okay? There's no doubt. And clearly he had a gun. Was the gun illegal? There's no charges for the possession of a weapon. So it's probably legal possession of a weapon. So you got a dopehead sitting in his house with a gun. Okay? Guys kick his window in and go, what would you do if somebody kicked your window in and came plowing into your house at 5.30 in the morning? Is it at least reasonable that if you saw multiple people coming in through a window like that in the morning, in the dark that you might think you're being attacked and you might shoot them? Is it at least reasonable? I think it is. Am I saying that this is absolutely a case of the state prosecuting an innocent man? I'm not going to say that because I don't know. I don't know. There needs to be more information given out here. I know that if I'm on this jury, if your assertion is simply that they came through the window and that he shouldn't have shot them, you're not getting a guilty verdict from me. You're not. You're going to have to prove to me that once this man knew they were police officers, he fired. And you're going to have to prove to me that he did so, okay, before, in other words, the first shot. If he, if you're going to try to make the case, well, some of the follow-up shots, by that point he knew he was, it was police officers. Hey, at that point, they're going to try to kill me. I'm trying to stay alive. I have a right to self-defense. Even if you're a cop, I'm sorry. You don't have a right to try to kill me. Right, And it's reasonable for me to expect that when I shot him, you're going to try to kill me. And at that point, I'm I, keyed up in that state, I may return fire. Now, you might make the case that at that point I should be surrendering. I didn't know, I didn't know, throwing my gun down, whatever. Hey, it's easier said than done, but even if you're going to make that case, it's not capital murder at that point. If you're seeking the death penalty in this state, my state, Texas... You're stating that I, I killed you with premeditation, with the intent to kill you. So that does not mean it. To, I, I took a day to plan it out. Premeditation can occur in a second by the letter of the law. That means I saw the guy coming in. I saw that he was a police officer. And in spite of the fact that he knows he was a police officer, I decided to shoot him with the intent to kill him and succeeded. That would be capital murder. Under Texas law, punishable by the death penalty, even though he came in through the window. But you'd have to prove that it is beyond a reasonable doubt 
that he knew that was a police officer and not someone coming into his home. And it, it, I, I don't know how you do that. I don't. And, and this is okay. Cops shouldn't be doing this shit. This is bad all around. This practice is is going to get innocent people shot on both sides. This is not how a SWAT team was never meant to do this. That's one of the things the article makes a point here with. SWAT teams were meant for like hostage situations and things like that, not to serve a drug warrant, right? Which was wrong, by the way. He didn't have a whole bunch of dope, so it was probably some guy that they were leaning on for information that made some bullshit up about a guy he knew about or didn't like to try to cop a deal or something, which is you know, wrong in of itself. But then to go serve this kind of warrant over... Okay, so look, we got a guy in there. We think he's armed, and he's got some dope. Okay, fine. Well, where's he going? What do you mean? Well, where's he going to go? We could leave. Okay, so let's, let's, let's surround his house. Let's observe what's going on. Let's let's determine whether this is... Let's put some surveillance out here. Let's see if there's any validity to this claim. If a guy's got that much dope, he's going to try to leave with it, okay? And if you got a warrant to search for it, you wait for a situation where you see him leaving his house, you use that opportunity to apprehend him, and then you serve the warrant for search, and you, you, you go in and search his property, okay? Or you start seeing people coming in and out of there dealing dope. Right? Because he's either going to take it somewhere, right? Or he's going to be dealing it from there. One or the other. That's what dope dealers do. Okay? Plain and simple. It's that simple. Now, I'm going to tell you something even scarier here. How they might be pursuing this. This might be the case the prosecution makes. But I don't know how because they didn't have any drugs on him. He had the weapon during the commission of a crime, and therefore the, 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 the results of that are his fault. See, in other words, there's a lot of states that have this law. So let's say, let's say I break into a place, and I have a gun with me. And I, my life is legitimately threatened in a way in which I could say that it was self-defense. But because I had the gun in the commission of a crime and chose to commit the crime, it's now, it's now, I am now guilty of murder. But this is usually going to be like second degree murder. Not capital murder, not first degree premeditated murder. And they would say, well, yeah, you, you could have gotten killed there. And we understand why you defended yourself. But, but, you put yourself in that position. It's, it's very much like if you have no insurance on your automobile. And you get in a wreck. It was actually the other person's fault. You can face liability because the truth is, even though they were at fault due to traffic law, your vehicle shouldn't have been on the road. Therefore, if your vehicle was on the road, that accident couldn't have occurred, and you were in violation of law with your vehicle on the road. And how far that gets taken is always subject to uh, the, the people involved at the governmental level. But I don't know. I don't think it's reasonable to expect that someone might not shoot somebody climbing through their window at 5.30 in the morning. If, if I'm on this jury, I'm not saying you couldn't get a guilty verdict out of me. If you've got testimony that I believe anyway, that the guy kicked the window and came through the window and said, police, and held up a badge, right? And the guy, and there was enough light and visibility in the house, the, the room was clearly lit, and the guy had his badge out, said he was the cops, and he shot him, maybe, 
and then continue to shoot at other police officers. I don't know, though, man. This is not how you serve a dope warrant. It isn't. I know some of you are going to write me and tell me, oh, yeah, it is. No, it should not be. This is something that could be done in a light of the day. And you wait for the opportunity when you know you can get in there without a lot of risk to life. Because cops, in this scenario, you have a responsibility to protect yourself and your buddies. You also have a responsibility to, if this guy is guilty and in the commission of a crime, serve your warrant and apprehend him without harming him if at all possible. And choosing to do a no-knock, no window-entry warrant with a SWAT team at 5.30 in the morning in the dark is not ensuring or giving the best probability that there's going to be no exchange of violence. And it's very possible that this man is a dopehead, and he's got other dopeheads around him, and he's a paranoid dopehead, And he thought other dopeheads were coming in his house to hurt him. He might, the guy that narked on him could, he could owe him money. This might have been payback. You don't know. And he was like, well, it's just one dope dealer trying to kill another dope dealer, Jack. Why do you care? And now a cop's dead because of it. Shouldn't you? I mean, so what? The guy, because it could be you next. Because the same call could get made. And not only would it be a bad call, but the wrong address. Because that never happens. Oh, it's happened. Right? It could be you defending your family when some guy kicks a window in at 5.30 in the morning. You tell him to stop. He comes charging through a freaking window. And you draw down and pop him. Just like your training tells you to. And then the state wants to prosecute you for murder because he happened to be a cop that was too stupid to know how to serve a warrant properly. Or more accurately, he was probably serving under people that were too stupid to know how to serve a warrant properly. Because he was probably following his orders and doing what he was told. I'll tell you what, guys. You guys in the law enforcement community, you end up in these types of situations. You start asking questions. Why are we doing this this way? Do we really need to be doing this this way? This is a military tactic, not a law enforcement tactic. And military tactics result in gunfire a hell of a lot more often than law enforcement tactics. It's just the way it works. Again, though, I'm not going to come down on one side or the other of this one, but I'm going to keep my eyes on it. This is one of these ones you really don't know exactly what happened. But usually, once this is public and the state announces they're going to pursue a death penalty case, they make some information available about why. Not just yeah, we went in there and he shot a guy. You know, it's it's like there, there there's some there's some level of, of of information goes to the public that says we believe we have a case because the the, the defendant in fact didn't know the office that the the, uh, the people were officers. I you know something like that and some some inkling as to why. In every other case I've ever seen like this, here's my guess. My guess is the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in here, there may be a legitimate charge. It could be he shot the first guy. The cops did notify that they were officers. And they're out there yelling, this is the police. This is the police. Hold your fire. It's the police. And the guy keeps shooting. Right? And, and that there's, there's some belief that like this guy knew what he was doing after a certain point. But did he, the, the initial engagement was exactly... So the initial engagement was somebody kicks my window and I shoot him and then holy crap, I'm in his state. And that's not capital murder. I'm sorry, it's not. Because you broke in my house and I didn't know who you were. And it's reasonable to expect that I might use defense. Somebody, But they, they may be able to make a case for, for lesser crimes than capital murder. 
And my guess is this guy probably has no legal representation. He's probably got a state-appointed attorney. He probably does have a, a, a drug record a mile long. And they're trying to scare him with the death penalty to accepting a lesser charge. Second-degree murder, intent to commit murder on the other three. They might even say, well, drop the murder charge on a first officer. And you have three counts of attempted capital murder. Do we accept your, well, we're not going to say this, but what the prosecutor really be saying at that point is we accept your story about the first guy you shot. We don't ex expect your story about the next three you shot. But, hey, dude, with your background and your dope use and everything else and your record, you know, we can make a very compelling case. You could be looking at, at the, uh, lethal injection. So you'd be much better off taking this plea bargain that the public doesn't see. And we're putting this out there to make sure you understand that we're serious. That's my guess. But, folks, it is nothing but a guess. But I just don't think that unless there's an imminent threat to life somewhere involved, the police officer should ever be kicking a door in and serving a no-knock warrant that way, especially 5 o'clock in the morning, with no expectation that the person might not know who they are, might think that they're breaking into their home, and might shoot them by accident. Again, though, it's one of these ones I just don't know. All right, with that, I think we'll wrap up today. I do appreciate all your feedback. Again, you send feedback like this to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, video for Jack, whatever in the subject line, and I'll take a look at it and see if I can get it onto a future show like this. Remember, all of the links to all of the stories that I cover every day are in the show notes at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Today's episode, again, 1,431. But as we wrap... I want to talk to you a little bit about like some of the stuff you hear today. Again, it gets to the stuff like, well, what do I do about it? And, and the answer is you have to start building solutions in your own life. We have to start building our own, our own solutions and our own relationships and our own voluntary associations. It, it's, it's time to stop trying to change the way other people are and change the way that we are. And it's time to start empowering and enabling ourselves, I think, both at the community, personal, physical level, and with technology. I'm, I'm very encouraged about the chatter that's resulted out of my discussions about virtual nations. And I'm, I'm very encouraged at some of the things that are already being done. There's, there's a lot of stuff out there that's, that's sort of being done already uh, that's heading in the right direction. There's articles out about the coming digital anarchy. Uh, for instance, that I didn't share with you this week, there was some of the you know chatter that, that came in, and that's one solution. I think it has to be multi-pronged. It has to be solutions of real people really working together, really spending time together in the real world, and we also need to leverage technology, and we need to preserve what we have. I think that we're at a point now where before we we start trying to take back liberties, we have to cut the bleed, stop the bleeding. I think we're at a point now where we, we really need to start laying down a line and saying how much, for, and I think that needs to be the conversations with your friends. When, when, you, when you discuss things like these ridiculous policies or schools have now, the kid can't give another kid a burrito. Instead of saying, well, what do we want to do about it? Your response needs to be something like, how much further are we going to allow this to go? Where's your point? Where's your line in the sand where you just will go, no, we're just not doing that. I, I think that that's, I, I hate it. I hate it, but I feel like that's where this country now has to get to for the tide to change uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the macro level. 
that we have we have let so much fall so far so fast that the average person is incapable of doing anything about it. They just can't. They won't and they can't. They can't figure out how and they don't know what to do and they really don't have time. They're just like, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think they have to get to a point where they feel like a like an animal backed into a corner. Where they say, you know what, no, 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 we're just we're and, and that's where it has to be. It has to get to the point where this friggin' nation develops a backbone again and just says, We're not gonna be doing that. But until they do, you have to do it for yourself. Remember, I mean, we just turned the corner into another season. It is fall. The uh, the fall equinox is upon us. And it's up to you. I talk, the clock is ticking. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. What are you doing for your own individual liberty? Parents, as you consider the education of your children, please think about all of the things that I bring to your attention. And decide if you really want these people, quote-unquote, educating your children. People that will say, because most, most people in the education system, not all, but most are liberals. And they'll say it's so, in, it's so unfair that there are people that go hungry, but will punish a child for sharing his food. Are those the people you want educating your children? I don't. And if I had it to do over again, I would have found a way. I would have found a different way. And I think it's worse now than it was then. How far are you willing to let them encroach? And until your fellow citizens are willing to stand up, what solutions do you have for yourself and for those that want that want a solution? It's time to innovate. It really is. It's time to innovate. Not just me. Not just you. Anybody that really wants a change. It can't all just be done by voting. I think most of us know that now. And it can't all just be done by finding a place in the middle of the mountains and asking to be left alone, because sooner or later they won't even leave you alone there. It's time to build creative solutions that exist right next to these terrible solutions. What can you come up with? That's my question for you today. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. we
Show you.